Hi, this is Rich Procida, producer of Bible Study for Progressives. I'm starting a new show called Democracy Under Fire. The show will cover the threat to democracy in America and around the globe and what people are doing about it. We will be switching to a newscast format and using Zoom to record our shows, and you're invited. On Friday, September 17th, as part of the National Finish the Job for the People Week of Action, we will be recording our show followed by discussion, strategizing, organizing, and taking action. Our Zoom call will not be aired live. Go to tinyurl.com slash democracy under fire. September 17th is also the National Finish the Job for the People Day of Action. There will be actions across the nation. Go to mobilize.us slash DFAD coalition to find an action near you. Thank you for all that you do. I hope you will enjoy this discussion between Bert Newton and Dr. Sebastian Doan. Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives, a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality, and politics. We engage scripture in its historical context, plumb its depths for wisdom and guidance, and apply its lessons to current events and social issues. Whether you're a liberal evangelical a New Age spiritualist, a social justice activist, or a postmodern theologian. There's something in this show for you. Come, be energized in spirit and mind to understand the word and what it means to be a spiritual person in today's world. We are interviewing Sebastian Doan, professor of biblical studies at the University of Laval in Quebec City, Quebec. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah of course. Thanks uh, Thanks for the inv- invitation, Bert. Dr. Doan is a listener of this podcast. I'm a fan. And I'm honored by that. Dr. Doan contacted me through Twitter to let me know that. And since he is doing academic work on the Gospel of Matthew, I asked him where I could read his work, and he sent me to links to some papers that he has written in English. Most of his work is in French. And although I struggled to understand some of the academic verbiage, I found a lot of resonances with what I have been doing in this podcast, but also some dimensions of his work that go beyond what I'm doing. And ironically, irony and parody being one of the things I'm always looking for, ironically, may, I think, even though it's very academic work and not always easy to understand by lay readers such as myself, his work may hold some keys as to how to apply the text of Matthew in terms of personal and communal transformation. In other words, entering into a transformative relationship 
with the text. He has published many papers, one of which we will discuss in this interview. His dissertation was on the first two chapters of Matthew, and we will be discussing some of his ideas in that work. He has also published a book entitled Zombies, Unicorns, Cannibals, Strange Tales from the Bible, published by Paulist Press. And I want to read the description of that book from the Paulist Press website. It reads, Was Jerusalem the scene of an invasion of zombies? Do unicorns frolic in the books of the Bible? Moreover, are there cannibals, a donkey that speaks, a son that refuses to continue its journey? This book answers these questions and many others that a reader may be asking while browsing this amazing book that is the Bible. By digging up the most disheveled and sometimes least well-known accounts of the Old and New Testaments, not only does Sebastian Doan introduce us to colorful passages, but he also leads us to become better readers of the biblical texts. His simple and humorous approach restores the desire to frequent the scriptures. Anyway, welcome, Sebastian Doan. Did I get all of that right, or is there anything you would like to add by way of introduction? No, that's perfect. Uh, thanks, Bert. And yeah, I, I do have this um, way of, uh, of working that comes from my interaction in pastoral work with, uh, with youth, with teens. And to talk about the Bible, you have to find an, an interesting angle. And once you're in there talking about something that's kind of weird, well, they actually they get interested in it and they get to know the Bible better. And, and uh, well, now that I'm more in academia, I continue to be interested in the more marginal stuff that's happening in our biblical texts. Yes, your background is in youth work and also radio, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I work in communications, but my main language is French, so I might seem a little bit <laughs> weird, weird to listen to in English, but uh, I think I'll manage. You sound perfect, and your background gives you unique insights into the biblical texts. You are fully academically engaged. That's very evident from your papers. I got all the footnotes. <laughs> yeah, the footnotes. That's, those are important, and those, those footnotes seal the deal. But you also have this background of interacting and really connecting with people in the real social world, which has given you particular insights into the text. So I've got basically three big questions. So let's jump into those and see where that goes. First question. In episode one, I proposed the idea of trickster texts, texts that seem to be saying one thing but are actually saying another, sometimes the opposite of what they first appear to be saying. So I suggested that the genealogy in Matthew deconstructs itself. You talk about self-consuming texts and suggest that Matthew's genealogy is one of them. I think we're saying much the same thing, but your concept is more dynamic because it involves an ongoing process and involves the transformation of the reader. Can you explain this concept and how it overlaps with what I say in episode one and how it is different or goes beyond what I was saying? So um, the concept that you're talking about uh, that I use to un better understand the genealogy is a self-consuming artifact. That concept comes from a, a professor called Stanley Fish. He used to be in the literary world. Now he's in more of a, the, a legal uh, professor. Uh, but his concept is basically he looks at literature that at the same time says something and asserts something else completely and leads the reader uh, befooled. What do we do with this text? So his concept, uh, the self-consuming art uh, artifact, is to say that 
the text consumes itself. It guides the reader to understanding something and then abandons this perspective completely. And at the same time, the reader's self is also consumed because uh, we, we were reading with the text, we we're going in one direction and that's discarded. And at the same time, we're invited to discard something of ourselves to go somewhere else with the text. And I think that's what's happening in the genealogy, um, specifically with the numbers of generations. I don't know if, uh, if well, you talk about that in your first episode uh, in the genealogy. There, verse 17, there's uh, a recap that puts everything in three, three groups, uh, from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to Jesus, and says that there's 14 generations in all of these three uh, segments. But if we read back and we actually count the numbers of Egenesen, the Greek word for father, this guy, um, there's only 13 of them in the first group and in the last group. For the first group, we say, well, maybe it's, you know, the, uh, Abraham's own birth should count. So we don't really, uh, it doesn't cause so much of a problem. But then the last group, we're like, well, there's definitely a, a generation missing here. What do we do with that? And scholars have gone crazy on this. Um, there's, uh, I, I've read through dozens and dozens of solutions uh, to this problem. Uh, should we count uh, twice David, because we, his name appears twice in the genealogy? Could, should we count twice Jaconia? Uh, his, his name also appears twice in the genealogy, but it, it's the same character. It's not another generation, so that doesn't really make sense. Um, other people would say, well, it's just a mistake, or uh, Matthew's working with some, uh, you know, but if we say that, there's so many things that don't work in the Bible. If we just say, well, that's a mistake, we're not really doing any scholarship at all. We're not, we're not being intelligent. Um, some people say, well, it's maybe it's a different way of counting. Maybe Matthew's fluid in his counting. Uh, this name can go with this group and then with that group. Or uh, there, there's been other possibilities. Uh, maybe we should count Jesus one time and the risen Christ another time. Or count Mary or count uh, Jesus's unknown father, if, if he has one, a human father, or count God as Jesus's uh, father and that, that it's not named, but it should be the other generation that's not pointed to or the Holy Spirit or whatever. We, we plugged in different answers to fill this problem and say, okay, we got it. We got a solution. Now we can continue reading on. What I, my point is that the important, the important thing is to experience the problem. It's not about finding a solution. It's about getting into this problem and saying, whoa, this is not working in a literal, literal way. Uh, it's like there's a wink from the author to us to, that says, this is Jesus's genealogy. But did you, did you see just what I did? Uh, you know, it, it, this gene genealogy, sorry, doesn't quite work. There's a, a lot of uh, irony in it, as you said. Uh, one could even say it's like a, a, a satire, a parody of a genealogy. If you would make, uh, you know, if you would just want to make a, a, a glorified genealogy for Jesus, it would be really easy to do, and you would just take the, the great moments of Israel. But at the same time, th this is not what the, what Matthew's chose to do. He put forth the, the exile, the worst moment in, in the history, and the other turning point is David, and and specifically, it, it, it talks about David having fathered Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So it points out to the the worst moment and says, okay, Jesus is um, in the lineage of David, but you know this David, um, 
he 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 did something that's pretty pretty weird. Uh, he did, it doesn't point to that David that's uh, I don't know the the shepherd in Bethlehem or the the the, the unified kingdom king. No, no, it's the David who committed adultery uh, or, or even rape or and murder. Um, so it, it sets up Jesus as son of David, but at the same time, it tells us well he won't be that kind of of, of king. And um, so the same thing is is true in the number of generations. Uh, he also skips uh, three kings in the Old Testament list, and so so it, it, an attentive reader, uh, when he notices the number of generations, he sees well. This is not something you have to take literally. It's a construct. It's 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 a it's it's a literary construct, and it's telling us something about Jesus. And what it's telling us is that this Jesus is not is not King Herod, basically. He's not the, the, the official king in Jerusalem. He's somebody from the outside. There's women in there. There's, there's foreigners. Uh, there's, uh, there's unknown people. A, a third, the last third of the list of the genealogy after the exile, we don't have a clue who they are. And it's the same thing with Jesus. He pops up from a family of unknown people. So um, there's a lot of ir uh, ironic stuff happening in this genealogy. And my, um, my paper that you read uh, points to the number of generations, which is, the for my part, one of the most obvious uh, problems. And, and it says, well, it's, it's, let's not try to find a solution as the other exegetes try to do. Let's, let's see what, what is this text, what, it's, what is it doing, and to experience this problem, and to experience it to better read what's following. So, and, and I, I really enjoy what you do with your podcast because it, it's like you saw that uh, that wing from the author in the first chapter, and it it helps you for the rest of the gospel to read it with an eye out for everything that's ironic, everything that's the, all the reversals. Because ultimately, at the end, there's the ultimate reversal of everything. Jesus dies, but it doesn't end there. He's resurrected. Uh, he's risen. So, um, and, and this reversal, this complete reversal, makes for that all of the, the story uh, tries to open the reader to other reversals that sets up this, this main reversal of the whole gospel story. Um, because, you know, nobody was waiting for a crucified Messiah. The Messiah, a King David Messiah, would have just, you know, risen up a, a, an army and put the Romans uh, away and build back a kingdom like, like there was before. Um, you know, we we could we see this in other texts. Uh, there's other texts from uh, from other sources in the, the Bible about this region, and you know, like the Psalms of Solomon and Qumran text, where we see that there are that there's these messianic expectations that if you want Jesus to be a Messiah, have to be reversed. So the genealogy in Matthew starts that it says, well, Jesus it, right from the first verse, Jesus is pointed to as Messiah. But at the same time, it reverses everything. So we get to understand that Jesus can be a Messiah of an, in another way. Now, you say that the author of Matthew gives the audience a wink to let them know that there's something ironic going on here. But there are some commentators and scholars who resist that sort of reading because they don't think that ancient writers had the ability to do that, to give that wink, to write irony or parody. But from what I can tell, ancient writers did engage in parody. I mean, there's Apuleius and the Golden Ass, for instance. Can you speak to the ability of ancient writers to give that wink, to write parody? Of course. And, and, and we see this in uh, a lot of um, the, the, the Greek or Roman rhetoric, uh, rhetorics. Uh, they, they, they speak to all the different kinds of irony there was. 
Um, Quintilian was a famous rhetoric uh, who who would who defined irony in his and Plato uh, used it and bon so so it's not something that's out of context. Uh, and you know even in the basic text of uh, the biblical text we have different forms of irony uh, in mark's version of the passion jesus um, twice uh, just in Gethsemane, uh, twice he tells the disciples okay wake up guys don't 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 sleep there's something very important that's happening and they go to sleep a third time and finally he says okay you know rest it's not important what's happening here you know Obviously, that's ironic. He, he couldn't change of, uh, his opinion and, and, ask, and tell the disciples to rest. Irony is used. It's a form of, of it's a literary form that uh, helps make a point. Um, so, uh, but what I think uh, makes that we don't see it that much in Matthew is that Matthew was the most read, most commented gospel throughout history. The church fathers uh, and so forth, because it was considered the first gospel for so long, up until the 19th century. So we 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 have this classical way of interpreting Matthew because it's it's the one that was interpreted in that way. And since the 19th century, well, Mark was rediscovered because then okay, then we have this Mark and priority thing going. So to get back closer to Jesus, we're studying Mark. So everybody's interested in Mark, and we see the ironic reversals in Mark. We see some also in, in, in John's gospel, a lot of irony going on in John's gospel. But this, the, the Matthean scholarship has not been that much renewed because, um, you know, scholarship, scholarly interest has gone elsewhere and we're still using, uh, you know, old interpretive ways, uh, you know, classical. Eh, they're not bad. They're, they're just, they, they're, they're not geared to, to, to seeing the text in um, the way you present it in your podcast. And so um, I, I think there's a, a renewal of the scholarship on Matthew that's that's happening, and, and that's uh, and it's normal. We're in a, this persuasive arena where we have to show that my reading has something to bring forth, and I don't think it, it cancels uh, other readings. It's just it brings forth some other way of of looking at that text. In your paper, when you talk about self-consuming texts or artifacts, you talk about reading them and the process around that as an ongoing process that transforms the person or the community. Can you speak more to that? For sure. For Stanley Fish, which I talked about, who's uh, uh, the one behind the self-consuming artifact thing, more largely, he's interested not so much in what authors wanted to say. You know, uh, that, that would be a more historical approach. Or what's the structure of the text in itself? He's, he's more interested in the relationship between the text and the readers, and, and to be more accurate, about the reading experience as it is. So for Stanley Fish, the importance is not the 2,000-year-old the, the text. It's the experience that's happening right now. What's happening when I'm reading verse 1, 1 of Matthew? What's happening when I'm going to verse 2? Even more so, when, what, what's happening when I'm going from the fourth word to the fifth word? Is there some meaning that's happening in my head and then, whoops, I have to go back and change something? Or the meaning is not just what happens at the end of the book. It's, it's you were cons uh, constantly uh, evolving from word to word as we shift through the pages. So um, Stanley Fish's work has us, uh, it brings us glasses to read the Bible uh, as an experience. And I think that the biblical text, specifically the gospels, are meant to be transformative literature. They're not just med. They're not. Uh, it's not an archaeological thing to, to to keep hold of what happened. It's to transform the readers. It's to help us 
um, you know, discover that in life we have to help our neighbors, that God is there, that you know, the, 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 all, all the, the important things in the text is not about the text, it's about real life. So uh, I think the biblical text have us, uh, the gospel specifically, in Matthew in particular, wants us to, to, to read it, yes, but to read it as an experience and as a transformative experience so that it changes our worldview and that it changes us as well. Yeah, and I think we have to better unify what we're doing. Uh, when I'm with my my colleagues, other professors in a classroom or these days on Zoom, uh, we're doing something that's quite different than what we're doing when we're in a reading group in in, in our church or what we're doing when uh, when I'm reading my, my the Bible with my wife or kids. Um, but it's the same text. Why couldn't we do things a little differently, make, make more... Um, I don't know, make this biblical reading more grounded. Uh, what I read about and talk about in my uh, in, at the university shouldn't be that different than what I do in my, uh, in my church and in my uh, family life and in my real life. Uh, I, I think it all has to inform each other. Uh, better biblical scholarship should produce better Christians and better Christians should also help better understand the texts. Uh, it, we shouldn't have this separation that sometimes I see a little too um, too acute. Yeah, and, and and you know, I think that the biblical text should upset our world. And if it isn't, we're not reading it honestly. And that, I think, includes the mistakes. You know, that there are not 14 generations in that section. There are 13. And that, that Rahab is in the wrong century. And that different biblical writers might... They might disagree with each other. I mean, let's be honest about this. If we really revere the Bible, pretending that these things are not there is not doing the Bible or God any favors. Being honest about what it is, being honest about it, that's, I think, what we owe the text and what we owe God. I mean, I've come to the conclusion that I'd rather people be honest about the Bible, even if that means they come to the conclusion that they aren't a Christian anymore, because in being honest, we are free to really hear the text. Only then does it have a chance of impacting us and changing us, regardless of how we self-identify. And this text from Matthew, it 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 it, it, it sometimes fascinates me, but also takes the rug under from my feet. When I read the chapter five and six, when he speaks about money. Well, I like to have a bank account and put money away from my from when I get older and I, I'm owner of a house. And I, yeah, I can look at the lilies of the prairies and the, the birds. They don't need to do all that. And God's providing for them. But I'll provide for myself. Thank you very much. Uh, so when I read this text, I, I, I see that it's, it has a different point of view than mine, that it's challenging me. And that if I would be a 100% gospel Christian who would follow what was in the text, I would have to change my way of life completely. And honestly, I don't have the guts to do it right now. <laughs> and I probably won't do it for a, for a while. But I, I, I have the honesty to, to recognize that the text is different than me. Uh, sometimes we love to see the, the biblical text as mirrors of ourselves. We unconsciously project ourselves in the mirror and we see a Jesus that looks very much like us. But no, it, it, and, and one of the big differences is that um, the first century Christians... Uh, that wouldn't uh, call themselves Christians anyway, but the, the first century followers of Jesus, um, they were very in a very marginal place. 
they were not in charge of a society with thousands of people going to a, a, a church who uh, had influence on the laws of the empire. And no, they're, they're a marginal group. Uh, they're marginal within the empire. They're marginal within Judaism. Uh, so, uh, but when we're when we don't have any uh, marginality in our own identity, when we're uh, I don't know, a Christian, white, American in the United States, uh, well, you don't have that marginal experience that the, the followers of Jesus would have. So they, it explains for a lot of the misreadings that we might have or not getting to what what, what the text is talking about. Yeah, we have this tendency to read the text as if it's a 21st century North American text. But we are not in the same place as Christians in the first century. I have, to a very safe degree, in very safe ways, I've resisted the empire. For example, I don't pledge the U.S. American flag. And sometimes when people ask me about that, I hide behind my Anabaptist Mennonite connection and say, I'm Mennonite, so it's against my religion. But really, it's because I know what the U.S. has done abroad, invading other countries, overthrowing democratically elected governments from Guatemala to Iran to Haiti, not to mention what we've done to the poor and people of color within our own borders. And I feel that the gospel compels me to face this truth and not to pledge allegiance to a country that does that and not to prioritize my country, whatever the case, over other countries, my people over other people. So I've resisted but I haven't really suffered for it. You know, I just try to follow Matthew 25. Matthew 25, well, ultimately, salvation is about what you did to the your brother that's uh, poor, that's in prison, that's naked, that's thirsty, that's hungry. Uh, that, you know, that that's the ultimate um, checkpoint in, in Matthew's gospel. And there are different ways of seeing um you know, soteriology in, in the New Testament, but what it is to be saved in Matthew is is quite explicit and quite uh, concrete. And, I, and when I read that, I'm also I'm always surprised, and I'm always like, okay, well, uh, am I really saved? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. Right. And and, and it's it, it's um, yeah. Sometimes more more I read the Bible, more I see myself as a Pharisee that needs to be converted, and, oh. and that's why I read the Gospels because it, it it's has, still has to transform me. Uh, so I read it as a scholar, but I also read it as a as a real human being who wants to better understand uh, his place in this world. Yeah, I, I may have resisted, but I really haven't taken up the cross as an enemy of the empire. You know that language in Matthew, taking up the cross, is only slightly metaphorical. When Jesus says that, he does mean for his disciples to make themselves enemies of the empire, people that the empire wants to crucify, wants to execute. I haven't gone that far yet. I haven't done anything that has put uh, put a target on my back that has caused the U.S. government to want to come after me. So am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? Now, speaking of Pharisees, one of the episodes on this podcast, I can't remember which one, but one of the episodes, I make the suggestion that the author of Matthew perhaps was a Pharisee. Yeah, and, and if not, um, there's a lot of discussion about uh, Jesus. Was he a Pharisee or not? Uh, the, when you read Matthew, there's a fierce opposition, uh, chapter 23, with the Pharisees. But, you, you know, like Cain and Abel, you oppose yourself to whom's closest to you. 
Uh, you don't, you, you know, they don't talk about, I don't know, uh, ca Canadians. They don't even know Canadians. They don't care about Canadians, but they care about who's right next to them and in, in which there's a, there's a tension. And I, uh, more and more, we're reading Matthew within Judaism. Uh, Matthew is a, a Jewish text that speaks about Jewish people who follow Jesus as Christ and their struggles with Jewish people who don't follow Jesus as Christ. And they're, they're in interpretive battles about uh, how to interpret the Sabbath and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's, um, it, there's, a, there, there's a shift in it. We're no longer reading Matthew like this Christian text uh, written in a, a Christian society. No, it's not. Uh, it's in a context very different for, uh, from ourselves, and we're trying to get into it. And yeah, what if Jesus was close to this Pharisee world? What if the disciples were close to uh, the, the, what is named the Pharisees? And uh, how do they, 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 they distinguish themselves from that? And yeah, what you mentioned about the persecution, it's, it's clear when in chapter 10, 11, when he's uh, Jesus is sending the disciples on mission, uh, there is a lot of persecution going on. So we, 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 we don't have a very good idea who exactly was the author and what exactly was his situation. But he, there was certainly some persecution going on, and it was certainly a difficult thing to say you're a Christian and to be on the road uh, uh, proclaiming the gospel. And what, what you said earlier on speaks to that. Maybe we should be a little more uncomfortable. Well, maybe we should also see, is maybe we should be a little more literal about our reading of Matthew and actually go on the roads to speak about Christ um, or on Zoom or on podcasts. But 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 it, so I think there's definitely a difference between the context of the first century and our context. But there's also stuff that helps us make bridge between the, those two different contexts and see that you know our we have similar struggles. But at the same time, we have to be critical about everything. See, uh, is this is this really in the text? Is this really about me? About my reading of the text? Uh, what's happening there? Now the reason that. I suggested that the author of Matthew was a Pharisee is that he writes in pretty good Greek, so he's probably not a peasant. He's probably a scribe because only a scribe could write like that. So he's from the retainer class, the professional class that worked for the upper classes. And that's what many of the Pharisees were. They were part of the retainer class, many of them scribes. And Matthew pairs them with scribes, always pairs them with scribes, as if they are one cohort. So I think that he was a scribe and a Pharisee. And some Pharisees defected from their class and joined peasant movements, such as Zadok the Pharisee who joined Judas of Galilee in an uprising in Galilee against the Romans when Jesus was a child. I think that the author of Matthew was a scribe who defected from his class to join the Jesus movement, a peasant movement, and his part in the movement was to write one of the versions of the story of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and at the specific, you know, first century in Galilee and, you know, when you go a little further to the north and to the south as well, it, 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 there's a lot of stuff happening in the first century, a lot of, uh, of violence, a lot of uh, military repression, econo economic repression, and um, you, you can't, you can, it's impossible to argue for a neutral gospel, uh, uh, the gospel as a religious uh, text that has no economic or uh, agenda at all, and that Jesus is just being, no, uh, it's not possible. 
that in 70, just, just a, you know, we, we suppose Matthew was composed around 80 or something like that. But in 70, there's this horrible war. The, the, the Jerusalem's temple is burning and, and people are dying and leaving. And we suppose maybe Matthew's community had to move or some, some of the uh, Christians had to move and get out of this violence. And um, so it, it's a world, it's a, it's a rough world. And um, so the, I think the text speaks to that and that we have to have that in, in our heads, too. It's, it's, it's not meant for Sunday preaching at all uh, in a nice, comfortable church. Uh, these are people who, who live life and death issues. Uh, you know, the, the second chapter, Jesus has to, to go all the way to Egypt. Uh, you know, Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus have to go all the way to Egypt to, to escape and, uh, death. Um, I think that speaks about this community too, who maybe had to escape this violence. Um, it, it's the only gospel that talks about this uh, early on uh, trip. So um, I, 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 I think that yeah, there's a, um, it's it, there's a, we don't we can't pinpoint exactly geographically and where this happens, but we see that that, that, that there's there's something there's struggles that are happening. And where are you in those struggles? You have to be with the person that's that's dying, that's the, that's uh, sick, that's in prison, um, that that's hungry. Uh, so it's, these people actually exist. You know the Beatitudes. It's all about that too. Uh, it, it, so it's it's all over in Matthew. And, and I think that it, it, we need to. Um, to open our eyes to understanding the gospel in another way. See, it wasn't it wasn't written for a nice reading today in my uh, you know, comfortably sitting in a chair. No, it, it's a life and death thing that's that's surprising us and that's saying there there is life where there should be death. Uh, you know, even if you encounter uh, the most horrible stuff, well, you know, God is there in that horrible stuff and we'll be there together. And you know what? There's light behind that. There, there's there's a resurrection that's happening. So, of course, well, my, my paper is very technical and, you know, that's the academic stuff. But it, I, I think it, 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 it it's also grounded in, in a reading of the gospel that's um, has something religious, but not, you know, in the clouds religious, but something that, that the, the, in which religion and spirituality can, can get us to... Um, to get to be better humans in the worst circumstances if we have to deal with them or when we deal with them. Yes, the story in Matthew takes place in a very different world, and that makes it harder for us to find ourselves in it. But that's why I have my theory about the author of Matthew being a Pharisee who defected from his movement to be in sympathy with this peasant movement. Because for many of us, that's the guy most like us. We're not actually in the story. We're like the guy who wrote the story. Those of us who are educated, not upper class, but comfortable and educated, yet in sympathy with movements for, for a more egalitarian society, in sympathy with people who don't have the privilege we have. We're that guy. We're like the, we're like the author of Matthew. Now, I do want to get to that paper that you recently published on the Magi, seeing that it's uh, right before Christmas here that we're doing this interview. You've just published a paper on the story of the Magi's interaction with Herod in Matthew 2, as portrayed in the film by Pier Paolo Pasolini. That film's title is The Gospel According to Matthew. Can you describe your ideas in that paper and how it illumines the text for us? Sure. So as I, 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 what I do is I take, you know, 
literary concepts and use them to better understand the, the, what's happening in the Gospels. In this, and in this paper, I use one literary concept, but also the movie that you mentioned, uh, Matthew by Pasolini. So the, the concept is comes from Mikhail Batkin. Batkin is a Russian uh, who um, studied uh, literary stuff, and he used the, the carnivalesque. Um, carnivalesque is... He, he used the carnivals in the in medieval period to understand uh, literature. So he would look for in books uh, what happens in a carnival, you know, laughter, reversal, uh, grotesque, uh, and, and a, a, a kind of a renewal that goes against the the the, the, the official power. Because in the carnival, the people can do whatever they want, and those who are kings were not, and those who were not kings, well, we would uh, we, we would elect a, a king from uh, who is a nobody. So. I used uh, Mikhail Batkin's Carnivalesque to do a reading of Matthew 2. Uh, Matthew 2 is the, with the whole Magi coming over. And in that chapter, I think that the, the powerful, like Herod, um, actually seem helpless and completely foolish. They're the fools of the carnival. And uh, they, they, they're like buffoons, actually. Uh, Herod wants to kill Jesus, but ultimately he's the one who dies. And you have these uh, figures like the Magi who are failures of popular wisdoms. Uh, they interpret signs, they outwit the Atorian powers, uh, even Joseph and his family, they also outwit the powers, and everything is set up to, to, to find a king that's different, a different king who's completely vulnerable, and he's from the people, not a ruler, he's of the people. So from the very beginning of the gospel, there's an op opposition that, that generates a critique against the political and religious powers and that builds the kingship of Jesus in an anti, uh, antithesis to Herod. He's the exact opposite. And uh, I use the, 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 the film uh, from Pasolini to show, you know, Pasolini, he was uh, he proclaimed um, homosexual, atheist, but also very interested in the Gospels. And he did this whole movie on Matthew's Gospel being the most literal possible. But he has different... Um, Different wings also in his way of portraying Matthew too, that shows that he also has this carnivalesque uh, reading of the of the gospel. It's it's not about a religious experience of of kneeling in front of Jesus uh, as uh, adoring your savior. No, it's it, it, when you have these uh, these emissaries from some other countries that come and don't kneel in front of Herod, don't give him gifts, but kneel in front of Jesus and give him gifts. Uh, there's a, a clear political uh, statement there, and it's a very ironic statement uh, and, and a very subversive statement um, towards towards Herod and that kind of kingship. See, he's not the real king at all. Uh, there, there's a very clear opposition between the two ways of being king, and and that's why that's something that I think we have to very pay attention very closely because we have this tendency as Christians as putting Jesus up as the king, and he is the king that's. You know, he's the greatest, uh, he's the greatest, he would have been the greatest emperor of them all. He would have been the greatest president of them all. No, he's not, he, he did, that's not it at all. He's the opposite of that. Uh, he, he, he's the vulnerable child. He's the one who's going to be crushed by the king. Uh, but the Magi orient us to see that he actually is the one that we have to follow. And at the end of the gospel, chapter uh, uh, 20, Eight. Uh, at the end, uh, chapter 28, verses 20, uh, um, 
the, the, the readers are invited to take the same posture as the Magi. We are, the, the disciples kneel in front of the res uh, uh, resurrected Christ. So for the disciples, they needed to have that whole gospel story to get to, the, to where the Magi were in chapter 2. And I think we as readers are invited to take that same stance, to, um, to, to kneel in, in front of him. But let's see, what are we doing when we kneel in front of, the, 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 of Christ? And um, when the disciples do it in the last chapter, uh, they do it and some had doubts. So doubting is also part of kneeling. Uh, so to the, it, it, it's, uh, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening and all that, but faith and doubt are not opposition. They go together at the end of, Gospels, uh, of Matthew's gospel. So to be better Christians, maybe we should have better faith, but also better doubt. Uh, and right. I, I just find it interesting to see that there's a clear connection between the beginning and the end of this gospel text. So yeah, you'll, you'll, I'm sure you're going to put forth lots of uh, reversals at the end of the, you know, with the passion, the resurrection story right. there, there's a lot of this happening again. Uh, so right from the get go, the, 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 the text tells us, watch out, something's completely wrong here. We're changing everything around. Well, that's a spoiler. Uh, yeah, that goes to the very end of Matthew. Um, but yeah, you're right. That's that's the last thing we hear about the disciples is that some of them doubted. That's uh, the very last thing we hear, that they worshiped Jesus after the resurrection and some of them doubted. That's the very last thing. So, uh, But let's, let's leave it there. That's a good place to end it, a good place to end this interview. Thanks so much. This has been... Bible study for progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support will help us reach more people, produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Proceda. Thank you for listening.